All right, was that a blessing? How many here, by raising your hand, play an instrument? Currently, are currently playing an instrument? Raise it really high, I want to see. Okay, all right, keep it up. You're still playing, right? Keep it up, all right, all over here, okay. Very good. Well, I just want to commend you on the task of music training. I think it is worth it for sure, and it is, uh, it's a lot of work, isn't it? But uh, it's a great way uh, to develop the whole person, and uh, it's worth it. So keep it up. Uh, it's been uh, fun to watch from a distance. Canaan Baptist Church just explode in uh, music training, especially in the young people, and some not as young people, and that's very good, very commendable. I was thinking as the kids were playing, um, you know, obviously the kids playing is fruit of their own effort. But I think all of us recognize that uh, what the students do in recital or in playing is actually a, a, a testament to uh, their instruction. And of course, uh, the kids uh, in my family have benefited greatly from the instruction of the Falls Baptist Music School. They all started when they were four, three, three or four. And so they've been playing for years and years. And uh, really then, uh, as much as it does show something about their lives, and I'm thankful for what God's done, it actually shows a lot about their teachers. And I'm thankful for that. And it shows a lot about their mama. And uh, Mrs. Schultz has spent hours and hours, uh, mostly when they were younger. But you think in some of those early days, you know, when they're three, when they're four, when they're 14 and 15, but when they're younger, uh, really working with them in practicing. And I'm sure some of you parents are still in a place where the kids are young enough you practice with them, maybe, maybe some are like that, uh, where you practice alongside your kids or with your kids, and it takes a lot of time. Uh, my wife has spent in the, you know, the course of the last 20 plus years, um, hours, I mean just hours upon hours, thousands of hours uh, working with the kids, and um, as much as it's, it's partly just her working with them to get down what they're learning in their lessons, there is an aspect of parents practicing with their children that actually is will training. And uh, many times in those practice sessions, it turns into other sessions. And it's okay, you know, honestly, it's okay that it turns into a little bit of a different kind of training while you're training in music. And I think all of my children have benefited from some of that one-on-one -on -one time that even at times might have been discipline time. Uh, because uh, we wanted to win with the whole person. And uh, I appreciate uh, just watching him play. It's a blessing as a dad to watch him play, and it's fun. And uh, it's good to see uh, others playing too, so praise the Lord. It's good. Keep it up. Keep it up. All right, um, I'd like you to find Hebrews 12. <clears throat> this morning we talked about, in the book of Esther, we talked about God is the hero. And hopefully that, that was the big idea that came across, that God is the hero of your story. And uh, that God is the hero of everybody's story. And so don't, don't try and feel the pressure to be the hero in somebody else's life. You just be the part of what God's doing. God ultimately is the hero. Um, I want to do something that maybe is a little bit unorthodox in this setting. But I felt like in light of that, as I prayed about tonight, that the Lord laid on my heart to preach a message that kind of wraps into the grand illustration of the message. My own personal story. And I indicated when you, if you were to tell the life story of uh, Micah Schultz, there's some pretty big characters that you really couldn't tell the story without those characters. Um, <clears throat> but ultimately, the hero of my story is God. And I just felt impressed to, to, to give you a little bit about my own personal story and how God led me from you know, where I am to where I'm going. I haven't arrived anywhere, but where I'm going. And I wanted to share some of that. I did fail to mention... When I was talking about characters in my life, I failed to mention the most important main, uh, main character of my life. My, my, well, my life, my wife. And uh, so you can't tell my life story without my wife. So I had to make sure I got that in. So anyway, it's true, right? Can't tell, my, can't tell my life story without my wife. She's close to the hero, actually. So you've got, you know, God's the hero of my story and then right just really close to it is actually my wife. So she's, she's, she's the underhero of my story, for sure. All right, Hebrews 12. Uh, Hebrews 12, you know, comes right on the heels of Hebrews 11. And uh, Hebrews 11, sometimes we think of it as the, uh, the hall of faith. And uh, all these stories of uh, men and women who exemplified faith in their earthly journey. 
And though it might focus more on a few at the end, it kind of gives that encompassing uh, view of men and women who have gone before and have stood the test of faith, have really endured in the running of the, of the race of faith. And we're not going to preach in, in Hebrews 11, but with that as the backdrop, I want you to notice how chapter 12 begins. Chapter 12 begins with the word, wherefore. And so these next verses are built on what was just given, and that would be the demonstration of the testimony of many men and women who lived the life of faith, mostly in a way where they couldn't see the prize. And that's kind of the testimony of these. They were there before Christ had come on the scene, and yet looking down into days ahead, they had an enduring faith that helped them just to run the race, and that's what he says here. Of course, we have the privilege of looking back on the reality of the Lord Jesus Christ, what he did on earth, and uh, so our focus, as he says here, is on Jesus Christ, but not on Jesus Christ in prospect like the Old Testament saints would have. We look back on what Jesus has already done for us, what he is currently doing right now in us, and of course with eye to the future when he will one day deliver us. And uh, praise the Lord for those days. Um, so let's just begin reading in chapter 12 here, uh, first couple verses, and uh, let's consider how the Lord's working uh, in this day in, in our lives. Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight in the sin which doth so easily beset us, looking unto Jesus, I'm um, sorry, beset us, and let us run the, with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would guide this evening as we take a few minutes and consider this passage, consider some of the, uh, the, the reality of what it's giving to us. And Lord, I pray that even the um, uh, reflecting on how you've worked in, in my personal life and, uh, would be an encouragement. And Lord, you've definitely uh, proven and are proving to be the hero in my life. And I pray tonight that that uh, we would all um, give you the glory. And as we consider not just what, what part of the story I'm sharing, but even personal reflection of how you're working in each of our lives. And uh, we do praise you tonight because you are the hero. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Part of the problem the Hebrews were going through, if I understand a little bit of the context here, these were Jewish believers. And as they were entering into the New Testament era, the New Testament reality... Uh, what Jesus did is he fulfilled all of that ancient uh, temple religion uh, that was God's religion. Jesus fulfilled it in his perfect work on the cross. And so no longer do we do sacrificial service in the temple. Jesus, uh, one time, uh, shed his blood for our sins and has sat down on the right hand. And so our religion isn't a religion it's a relationship. So there's a reality of our walk with God, but it's not seen. They had a walk with God looking for a day that they could not yet see, but they had physical um, uh, aspects to their worship. So they would go to uh, this temple, or they would do things surrounding the temple that had to do with sacrifices, an earthly priesthood, earthly ritual, and it was very tangible. Can you appreciate that? It was tangible. Uh, frankly, a lot of it was very grotesque. Uh, the slaying of animals and the manipulation of blood, that was not very pretty. Uh, but there was incense, there was priests with garments, and it was very sensory. And the Jewish people growing up, or having been in that context, were very used to feeling Christianity, or uh, feeling uh, their, their relationship with God. And now Jesus Christ, having fulfilled those things, they were being trained to walk with God in a way that's not sensory, like we think of it, but spiritual. And uh, part of what was happening, I think, in the, uh, the lives of the uh, believers in Hebrews is they were tempted to go back. Because as they were trying to live the Christian life, a lot of it in ways that are not seen, it was not easy. And they're enduring difficulties and temptations and trials. And there was a temptation to go back to what they could feel. And the writer of Hebrews is saying, don't go back, go forward. Uh, you have a better way, and Jesus Christ is the better way. And uh, so here's, here's the illustration based on these men and women. He says, uh, 
Because we have the testimony, the great cloud of witnesses that have gone before us, let us, that would be you and me, lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us and run with patience the race that is set before us. And uh, I'm not going to talk too much about it, but the first illustration in here is that of a runner. And a number of years ago, I was challenged to run. And uh, I know looking at me today, I don't look like a runner, and that's okay. I've been in better running form before. Um, but uh, I had uh, injured my back when I was in high school. And uh, because of that, I, I just wasn't like I had been in high school. Wasn't as flexible, wasn't as, I was never athletic, but wasn't as athletic as I even wasn't back then. And uh, so somebody challenged me to run a 5K. And when I was in high school, I was on the cross-country running team. So we'd run 5Ks. That was the distance you'd run in high school. And uh, so all through high school until my senior year, I ran on the cross-country team. And I actually ran on the cross-country team mostly because it was the off-season. I was a swimmer. So that was my main sport was swimming. And, uh, but in the off-season, we'd run track, run cross-country. So I kind of liked cross-country. I liked long-distance running and, and wasn't real good at it, but I enjoyed it. And, and so somebody said, hey, why don't you run, run a 5K? And I thought, whoa, I haven't run a 5K for ever, like 20 years. I thought, I can't run a 5, maybe not 20 years. I, thought, I can't run a 5K. But I got a couch to 5K running plan. So, you know, couch potato to 5K. And, uh, you know, it wasn't bad. It kind of told you what to do this week, this week, this week. And then after eight weeks, you work your way up to a 5K, 3.1 or so miles. And uh, so I did it. And actually, my, my body responded okay to it. It's fine. So after I did it, then I found a plan to take you from a 5K to running a 10K. So a 10K is about six miles. I thought, okay, all right. So I did some training on that. Were we running together at that point? And my wife was running, uh, not necessarily together, but... We were both running and uh, trained up to a 10K, which is about six miles. Well, when I was in high school on training days, you might run six miles or so, but that was a distance I wasn't real familiar with. And uh, that was a little bit of work to get from a 5K to a 10K. And I remember my wife and I, it would have been probably 2013 maybe, about 10 years ago, we went down to Chicago and ran in a 10K. And uh, it was a hoot. We actually ran it together until the end. I had a good time. Uh, my wife didn't enjoy it. I enjoyed it. It was good. So after I ran a 10K, I thought, okay, let's see. I'm about halfway to a half marathon. So I got a training plan to go from a 10K to a half marathon. A half marathon is about 13 miles, 13.1. And I uh, began to train for that. And it took me a little while to get from 6 miles to 13. But I think it was the spring of 2014 or something like that, I ran my first half marathon, and uh, that was a huge step for me. Never ran that far, ever, even in high school. I'd never ran uh, 13 miles, and uh, actually since then, I've run a number of half marathons, probably done maybe six or seven, and then a few years back, Brother Lebee and I talked about it last night, uh, a couple years back, I trained for a full marathon, 26.2 miles. And uh, that took me a long time to train for. I, I think for about six months, I, I fairly well focused on training. And uh, my training led me up to a 22-mile run. And it took me hours to run 22 miles. And uh, then you have a couple weeks where you kind of take it easy. And then the big day, running 26 miles. And we were down in Indianapolis. It was in November. I think the year was 19, uh, 19, 20, 2019, I think is when the year was, uh, before the pandemic. And uh, I was there, and there probably were, I don't know, a few thousand people lined up for this marathon. And uh, it was probably upper 20s that morning when we started. So you're pretty chilly, you know. By the end of the run, it was maybe 40. So it was just beautiful, just perfect. And you're lined up with all these people, and uh, you start running. You know, when you're running in a race like that, you actually are focused on the distance, right? You're focused on the goal. But in the beginning, when you're thinking 26 miles and you're on mile one, two, and three, the goal is really far away. So you have to pace yourself, right? You have to think in terms, okay, this is going to take me quite a while. I can't just sprint. This is a long run. This is a marathon run. I got to sprint. But as you get further down and you kind of begin to loosen out, because in the beginning you're clumped together, but then you kind of loosen out, you can imagine, um, you begin to pick out different runners. And I think it's just the nature of, just the nature of running. 
you're doing your thing and you're kind of getting past, you're passing people, and you're just navigating around people, but eventually you, you kind of find the crew that you're running with, the ones that are about the same pace, and, and then as you get further down the way, it helps to have a person or two that you keep in view because you don't want to lose those. And I can remember getting near the end, getting into mile 25, and uh, there was a runner in front of me that they were obviously tired, I was tired, they were in front of me, and I kept that runner in view because I needed to have that pace setter to get me to the finish line. And, uh, you know, I always thought when I was training, I thought when I get to mile 25, I'm going to think, wow, I'm so excited, I'm almost done, okay, here we go. That did not happen. At mile 25, I thought, oh, no way, I cannot go another mile, I'm going to die. And uh, then it says, three quarters of a mile left, one half a mile left. And it did, didn't matter how close I was, everything inside my body was screaming, just finish. And, uh, but it helped to have a pace setter. Well, just think about that here with what, what it says about the Lord. Because he used this illustration of running. And he does say, let us lay aside every weight. And, uh, let us, and the sin which doth so easily beset us. And run with patience or endurance. The race set before us, looking unto Jesus. And uh, the Christian run is an endurance run. It's an endurance run. There might be moments where your running picks up pace. But I think we all understand the Christian life, the Christian run, is a, is a long-term run. And uh, let me encourage you here as we jump into where we're going today. You're not going to make the endurance. You're not going to make the run if you don't keep your pace setter, Jesus Christ. And uh, you know, Jesus Christ does understand all about your experience. He understands deeper than you realize, frankly, deeper than you know. Jesus understands. Tempted in all points, like we are, he knows. So as you're running the race of the Christian life, keep him in view. Let him be your pace setter. Amen. But the illustration changes in verse 5, and that's what I want to focus on here. In verse 5 he says this, And ye have forgotten the exhortation which speaketh unto you as unto children. My son, despise not thou the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of him. For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. If he endure chastening, God dealeth with you as with sons. For what son is he whom the Father chasteneth not? But if he be without, chast without chastisement, whereof all are partakers, then are ye bastards and not sons. So the first point is that idea, the promise of sonship. Um, I mentioned this to the men this morning. i got to start here because it's the story of God being my hero, the hero of my story. Uh, but I was, I was born into a Christian home. Both my parents are born again. And, uh, boy, think of the greatest thing my parents have given me is they ushered me into a home where Christ was center and where I heard the gospel from my earliest days. Some of you have a similar testimony. My guess is a lot of you don't. You weren't raised in a born-again home. I was. Both my parents were uh, born-again Christians. And I mentioned to the men at some point this morning, I don't remember the first time I heard the gospel. I have no idea. Because I heard it my whole life. I don't ever remember the moment of learning the gospel. I'd always known the gospel in that sense. I do remember uh, the reality of my sin. I was only four years old. And I remember being convicted about my sin. I remember being scared about the consequence of my sin. I remember that. I remember thinking, uh, this would have been like 1980, something like that. I remember thinking, what am I going to do when the Russians bomb us with nuclear bombs? Scared me to death. And I'd, I would go to bed at night looking out the window for the bombers to come and drop nuclear bombs on us. And it creeped me out pretty good. So when I was four, I remember then kind of all this coming to, uh, to a head in my life. I knew I was a sinner. Um, I knew that even if I tried to do better, I couldn't do better. And I was very concerned about dying and, uh, in, in nuclear holocaust and going to hell. I didn't want to go to hell. I was scared about it. One night I was at my grandparents' home, and uh, my grandparents didn't keep us a lot, but for whatever reason, we were spending the night at my grandparents' house. And I couldn't go to sleep. I'm only four. I'm scared. Kind of typical little boy moment. And I remember saying to my grandmother, I said to my grandma, I said, I, I, I'm scared. I don't want to die and go to hell. So my grandmother taught me a prayer, and maybe you know this prayer. She taught me this prayer. Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. If I die before I wake... 
prayed the Lord my soul to take. Here I am, four years old. I'm thinking, that's the ticket right there. Perfect. Okay. Makes sense. You know, I'm asking the Lord to take me if I die. Okay, boom. I prayed that prayer over and over and over until I finally went to sleep. And, uh, okay, good. That solved the problem. Until the next night when I went to bed. Same panic. Same thing. Oh, oh pray the prayer. Now I lay me down to sleep. Pray the Lord my soul to keep. Over and over and over. Finally went to sleep. I don't know how many days in a row I did that, but I did do it multiple days in a row. Now it's four. It might have been three days in a row. To me, it was like an eternity of days in a row, but it might have been like three days. But I remember praying it over and over and uh, finally going to bed. But you know, it never changed my life. I never felt more peace. I never felt like it worked. And uh, on a Sunday night, I remember it super clearly being a Sunday night, going to bed, scared. Uh, I said to my mom, I said, I'm afraid I'm going to die and go to hell. And uh, my mom did something that night a little bit different than my grandmother did. My, grand, uh, my grandmother taught me a prayer to pray, and probably she was trying just to settle me down to go to bed. My mom taught me that eternal, eternal life is not about a prayer you pray. It's about what you do with Jesus in your heart. And that night, as a little boy, my mother led me to faith in Christ. And do you know what changed that day? That day I went from being a child of the devil to being a son of God. And you know, I've done a lot of really dumb things since that day, but never have any of those dumb things changed the reality of my sonship with God. And uh, part of my story has to start with that. My story starts with that. Had it not been that God intervened in my life and gave me a gospel witness that I was able to trust him as my Savior, I wouldn't be his son. And everything in the rest of my story is based on my sonship with God. And you know, God being the hero of your life has to start with him being your father and you being his son. And here it is, Sunday night, 5 o'clock, my guess is probably in a room like this, probably, probably you are a born-again Christian. But you know, the rest of your story is meaningless unless you've settled that matter of God as your father, you as, the, as his son. And it only comes by faith in Jesus Christ. But he goes on here in the illustration, and he does talk then about sonship, and, and he, he says, uh, you, you've forgotten the exhortation, verse 5, which speaketh unto you as unto children, my son, despise not thou the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of him. Well, I was uh, saved at four, a uh, child of God, and I remember even from my earliest days having, having tender thoughts of love for the Lord. I really do. I remember as a kid, uh, when, I, when I got a little bit older and God worked in my heart about being baptized, and I was baptized, and, and I remember as a sixth grader, God was working in my heart about being a pastor. I remember that. I remember thinking about that. And, and uh, honestly, there was a lot of my life that was not totally focused in that way, but what God was already doing in my heart was leading in that way. But unfortunately, as I got into my junior high years, uh, beyond that, um, I was in a public school growing up. And, uh, you know, honestly, if, you, if you're familiar with the public school, it's a pretty tough environment. And even back in the day when I was in the public school, it's a tough environment. A lot of pressures, a lot of different conflicting messages, and, and a peer, you know, peer pressure on you. And I, I, I fell into a lot of it. I, I, I struggled during my junior high years. I remember going through a phase, uh, really all the way up through, I think, ninth grade, where when I was at school, I would use words with my friends that I would never use in front of my parents. And I remember as a ninth grader saying to my mom once, going to my mom saying, Mom, i got to get right about this. I have been, I've been cussing at school. And uh, I'm in the look in her eye of disappointment. And that helped me. It helped me to confess that to her. Because I knew it was wrong, but I was trying to fit in, right? Trying to fit in with the guys at school. I remember uh, being influenced by friends at school in, in matters of media, matters of music, you know, matters of just lifestyle. And in those days, I can remember the conflict of trying to fit in with my lost friends more than identifying with the Lord Jesus. And uh, those are not good days, okay? They are not good days. Now, there's a lot of ways when I look on those days and I can think of the, mir the miraculous way God protected me in those days, uh, but I still look back, and it, it makes me sad. I wish I would have been more of a testimony for the Lord Jesus. Uh, as I got into mid-high school and, and uh, got a little bit more 
I don't know, more secure maybe in who I was, not super secure, but a little more secure than I was in junior high, kind of developed a group of friends, and, uh, but then at that point I became very self-focused on wanting to succeed. So in junior high you're just trying to survive, you know, and the peer pressure. But by that point, sophomore year, uh, junior year, I got a little bit more focused on I want to I want to get a good education and I want to make a lot of money. And you know, if you go to any public school, any school, you're going to talk to kids, and a lot of them have that same goal. And I just want to make a lot of money, and that was me. I wanted to make a lot of money, and that kind of became a, a goal. Probably in a real way, became a god to me. Wanted to be wanted to be rich. Wanted to make a lot of money, and. Um, don't tell my kids this, um, but I met my wife when we were in junior high. So we were just young pups. Uh, she was 13 and I was 14. Don't tell my kids because I don't want them to know that. But um, 13 and 14, so we were just young pups and uh, kind of grew up together. We lived an hour away, so we weren't together a lot, but uh, we would talk on the phone. Remember they had, you know, we had phones with like cords on them. We'd talk on the phone and get yourself wrapped up in the phone cord and and uh, you'd have to pay money for every minute of the phone call. And uh, we had a couple months where our parents were not real happy with us because of long-distance phone charges. Um, I think there was a month once where it was <laughs> a couple hundred bucks. So anyway, uh, that never happened again, I'll say that much. <laughs> but uh, so my wife and I kind of grew up together. And uh, so even during high school, uh, we were definitely, it was definitely a, uh, a part of our story uh, that, that we both are in each other's story, for sure, in uh, those days. But um, kind of had a focus on the future. Honestly, my focus on the future had to do with a lot of me, what I wanted. I wanted to make money, wanted to be successful, wanted Jenny with me, and that part turned out okay. The, the having a lot of money part didn't turn out yet, but having her with me, that part's turned out. Um, and uh, so kind of had our view of the future that was very self-focused. Can you appreciate that? Do you know, unfortunately, that's an easy thing to fall into, isn't it? Even as Christians. Um, our body ought to be a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, a reasonable service. But as a 17-year-old, 16-year-old, my focus of my future was very much what did I want. And I, I didn't forget about God. I'm all about God on this part, but it was all about me in my future. My senior year of high school, uh, my wife and I, I went to visit her cousin in Bemidji, Minnesota. And Bemidji, Minnesota is about three miles away from the North Pole. It's pretty far up there. Actually, it's very near the beginning of the Mississippi River. Mississippi River begins in Lake Itasca. So it's right up near the headwaters of the Mississippi, Bemidji. Anybody have heard of Bemidji, Minnesota? Wow, okay, unbelievable. All right, in Bemidji, Minnesota, about uh, four months out of the year, five months, the water gets very hard. It gets frozen, and uh, it's a little bit different than down here. Uh, very cold up there. And uh, most people in northern Minnesota either have one or know somebody that has a snowmobile. And probably not a lot of snowmobiles down in Georgia. How many of you have driven a snowmobile? Anybody? Okay. Oh, man, a couple people. Okay. All right. Okay. And uh, so our, uh, our friends, uh, her, her cousin, they had gotten a brand new snowmobile. This is the year 1993. Yeah, this is a couple years ago. 30 years ago. Is that right? It would have had to have been 93. Yeah, okay. Wow. All right. So they got this brand new Yamaha VMAX snowmobile. And they said it can go 100 miles an hour. All right. Well, at this time, I'm 17 years old. Jenny is 16. It's her cousin, and so we're going to go visit them. It's New Year's. Uh, it was New Year's Eve that we were visiting them, and one of the things we wanted to do is take the snowmobile out. Well, I've driven one a couple times. She'd driven one a couple times, but we didn't have them ourselves, so it wasn't like we had a lot of experience on snowmobiles, but uh, it was going to be fun, whatever, so we're going to go out on the snowmobile. And uh, so New Year's Eve, right? Uh, New Year's Eve, we headed out on this brand new VMAX Yamaha uh, sports snowmobile, 100 miles an hour. Okay, I'm 17 years old. I'm dumb as a box of rocks. And, and as a 17-year-old boy, what's going through my mind? Man, I'm going 110 on this thing, for sure. No doubt about it. And uh, so she starts driving at first. I'm sitting in the back. It's her cousin. I'm just the tag along. And uh, they, this thing was so brand new. I mean, they'd only driven it a couple of times. 
And uh, they had these brand new helmets, brand new gear, the whole nine yards. And when we put the helmets on, we couldn't quite figure out how to adjust the straps. So we just put them on kind of as a windbreak, didn't adjust the strap. That's foreshadowing. Okay, so we put the helmets on, and, and uh, we're tooling down this snowmobile trail. I, I know this might just seem foreign because you just don't have, you have four-wheelers, right? People have four-wheelers. Okay, it's kind of similar. It's just white. So uh, we're on this, uh, this, this snowmobile trail. In the summer, it's a bike trail. In the winter, it's a snowmobile trail. And it's straight. It's an old railroad track that they had converted into a, a bike path snowmobile trail. And uh, so here we are. We're tooling down that snowmobile trail. You know, straight, smooth, easy peasy. And she's going first. She's probably going like six miles an hour, six, seven, you know. And I'm sitting in the back. Oh, come on, open it up. And uh, so she was going faster than that, I'm sure. But so eventually we trade. Oh, man, let's do it. So I'm in the front. Let's go. And so I'm going 15, 20, 25. And if you've ever, if you've ever gone fast on like an ATV or, or a snowmobile, going fast in that feels faster than in your car. You know, so I don't know how fast we were going, you know, probably 20, 25, and, uh, but it felt fast, but, you know, it was easy going, you know, straight shot, what could go wrong, and so as we're, as we're going along there, um, I, I remember stopping and looking back at Jenny and saying, is that too fast, and uh, she probably answered that question like, yes, it's too fast, but I don't remember any of that part, I remember thinking, let's go faster. So, kept going, kept going, and uh, started going probably maybe 35 or so miles an hour. It's hard to say. It gets faster every time I tell the story, but faster and faster. Um, what I didn't tell you is actually just before we went to visit her cousin, I had signed up for the Army National Guard, and I had a thought of joining the military, and I was going to join the military as a way to pay for my college, and then take a year off, do my basic training, be a reservist, and then we would go to college together. That was our plan, and it was our plan. So I had just met with the recruiter. I had just signed up for the military. I had taken what they call the ASVAB, and it was some sort of a test to get placed, and they had asked me if I wanted to join the ROTC and whatever. So I had kind of some thoughts of doing some military and before I actually fully, you know, signed up or enlisted, we're up in Minnesota. And so here we are, we're tooling down this uh, snowmobile trail, 45, whatever, 35, 40, pretty fast. And we're coming up to a bridge where the Mississippi flows into Lake Bemidji. And then on the other side of Lake Bemidji, it flows out and keeps going. And so we're coming up to this bridge that goes over the Mississippi River. Now, at that point, the Mississippi is not very wide. It's maybe 100 feet across. It's still pretty, pretty narrow at that point. We're near the headwaters. And uh, so we're coming up to this bridge. But the bridge, it's like I'm looking down this aisle. It's straight. The bridge, just keep going. So I didn't think too hard about it. I'm just going to right across that bridge. But there was a sign that said warning. And the warning was slow down when you're going over the bridge. I'm 17. I'm dumb as a box of rocks, right? I'm not thinking about anything other than how fast can this bad boy go. And so I'm, you know, I'm going, I don't know, whatever, 40, 35 miles an hour. Well, what we didn't perceive in, uh, uh, as we're driving down this trail was that the bridge wasn't built at grade. It was built on grade. So there was just a little bit, it wasn't much, just a little bit of a, of a bump to get up on this bridge. And uh, so here we are, we're, we're, you know, we're going, we're moving. And when we hit the bridge, I lost control. And uh, to be honest with you, I don't remember anything else. She remembers everything. We lost control, and uh, somehow, probably in losing control, I accelerated. And, uh, you know, grabbed the hand, whatever. I lost control, probably accelerated. She got thrown off the side. So all that she remembers is sliding headfirst down this bridge, watching two helmets rolling in front of her, uh, hers and mine. She uh, gets up and sees the snowmobile turned upside down on the other side of the bridge, and so she's assuming that I'm in the water. I'm not there at this point. So she's looking, 
where am I, where am I? And somehow, and I don't know, I'm sure you could explain better, she finds me, I'm on the bank of the river on the other side, kind of down uh, in the ditch on the other side of the, of the bridge. And uh, so she runs over to me. I don't remember this because I was not conscious. So she runs over to me and uh, tries to get my attention. And she'll say that uh, I, I got up on my hands and knees and I looked at her. My face was all bloody just from getting scratched up and I'd broken my nose. And I moaned a very deep moan, rolled over on my back and just laid there. And we had just, just minutes before, we had passed a fellow walking his dog. So uh, he ends up coming to help. She runs to a nearby house uh, to call for help. And uh, I'm unaware of all of this. And uh, apparently, as I had gotten um, accelerated, as the snowmobile accelerated, my left ski caught a post in the bridge. And if you know anything about physics, when that ski caught the post in the bridge, the snowmobile essentially stopped. Problem is, I didn't. And so the snowmobile stopped. I kept going. I ended up flying about 150 feet uh, airborne. I think I rode the rail of the fence a little bit, but then ended up going about 150 feet uh, total and landing. And uh, the, the, the amazing thing about it is where I landed was just a few feet from the shore of the river. Uh, just a few feet in front of me was this overgrowth of brush. And it wasn't grasses. It was actually like, you know, low bushes and things like that. Uh, just to my left, as I flew, uh, was where the, you know, where the woods began. So there was trees there. And then to my right, as I flew, there were these railroad ties that kind of were used as, re, uh, as retention, uh, retaining uh, under the bridge there. So there was one spot where I could land and actually not really be hurt. Well, whatever. Um, so she, she comes to me, and, and, uh, and I respond. She goes to get help. The first thing I remember in that is kind of that echoey, have you ever passed out before and when you come to there's kind of that echoey sound, has anybody ever passed out? Anyway, it's kind of that weird echoey, dreamy kind of state. And I remember laying there and my hands were so cold. And I think it was probably just the shock of it, you know, my, my body was in shock. My hands were cold. And I don't remember a lot of feeling other than just, what's happening? And I hear this dog barking and I hear this commotion and I'm kind of out again. And then I hear all this commotion around me, and there's people, and they're doing stuff. And I remember kind of waking up and saying to this fella, I said, what's going on? And he said, well, you've been in an accident. I said, oh, am I dreaming? And he said, no, this is real. And at that point, I'm beginning to come to. And I remember looking at this man saying, I'm scared. And he said, we're doing the best we can. Well, they told us later, they told Kim, her cousin, that the paramedics did not think I'd make it to the hospital. Because they couldn't tell, obviously. They're on the, at the field trying to figure it out. And they thought I'd probably so damage my insides that I was literally bleeding out internally. And it uh, turns out that I made it, believe it or not. I'm still here. It's the real thing. Um, that uh, they, they got me all, all hooked up, put me on that backboard. And I remember when they took me out of the snow and put me on that backboard, just pain through my whole body. And, uh, whoa, get me off this board. Um, turns out, this is later in the story, I had actually broken two of my vertebrae in my lumbar. So I had to be on the backboard, I get it, and it was painful, right on those broken bones. And uh, then I remember kind of in and out and trying to figure out, okay, hold on a second, where's Jenny? And uh, I was able to talk to her briefly, and then they loaded me in the ambulance, and it uh, took me to the hospital. And I remember late, I remember being in the ambulance thinking all these just funny thoughts, you know, I'm in just sheer pain, you know, and then looking around going, I've never been in an ambulance, so this is really interesting. Oh, but I'm in pain. And I remember looking at the paramedic saying, you know, get me off this board. Thank you so much. I really appreciate what you're doing. Get me off this board. Oh, pain, just pain. I mean, get to the hospital. And I remember they, they had to leave me on the board for a while, you know, because they had to be careful with my body. And I remember when they finally got me on a bed. Oh you know, get off that backboard, and they did all these tests, and, and after this and that and whatever, I end up in a room, and they put me on morphine because of just the, just the trauma that my body went through, and so that kind of really knocked me out again, so I went from being, you know, the, the trauma of the moment to now I'm on morphine, so I'm kind of in it, I'm in la-la land at this point. So I remember laying in the hospital and looking at the clock, and it was three o'clock, 
And at that point, I couldn't have told you if it was 3 in the morning or 3 in the afternoon. It was just 3 o'clock. And it must have been in the morning because I don't think anybody was with me at that point. And uh, that was a very, very important moment for me. I hadn't talked real deeply with anybody. I'd worked, you know, obviously a little bit here and there with the medical personnel. But because of being on morphine pretty directly after it, there was still a lot I didn't understand. And I remember laying there looking at the clock and I asked myself this question. Am I going to die? And I didn't know. I didn't know what had happened to me. That is this it? Am I dying? And uh, there's a sense where God gave me just that confidence that this is not an injury unto death. And uh, uh, friends, I want to tell you what happened that night at 3 in the morning looking at that clock. I had lived my whole life as a decent Christian kid. I had done a lot of bad things, things I regret, but there's a lot of ways my life had been spared and protected for sure. But I was no witness for Christ. No way. I was very focused on myself. And as a boy there in the hospital that day, 17 years old, I remember looking at that clock and saying, Lord Jesus, I don't understand everything, but I want you to be the Lord of my life. And I turned my will over to Christ for the future. And there's a lot more to the story. Of course, that right there is a hero moment. Not me, but God. And there's more to the story, of course. There's a lot that happened after that moment. Uh, but that was definitely a life-changing point for me. I came back to my high school, uh, began to talk more about the Lord with my friends. My, it was on my mind. Jenny and I were on a journey at that point. And uh, God ended up using that very definitely. Well, you know, you think about that. That's a pretty, uh, pretty dramatic story. And it was. It was very dramatic. About a year later, somebody was asking me about just about the whole thing. And, and uh, somebody asked me a question probably when I was 19 years old. They said, if you could change one thing in your life, what would you change? And immediately, I said, I would change the accident. But I want to challenge you with this thought. And I told this person, as the words are coming to my mouth, the accident, I said, hold on, no, that's not true. Do you know, that accident was one of the greatest things that happened in my life. To this day, I wake up stiff. My back is not all that, you know, it ever used to be. That's why it's a wonder that I can run. Um, I, it, it's definitely affected my life to this day. Probably I'll have arthritis more, you know, as I get older for sure. Um, but you know, that accident was the mercy of God. Do you appreciate that? And in fact, look at our text again, because he says, My son, verse 5, uh, Despise not thou the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of him. For whom the Lord, what's the next word? He chasteneth and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. And he says that. When, when you're chastened, God is dealing with you as a son. And uh, there were moments in that healing when, God, when I was dealing with the, with the back injury. I had back fusion, so I have a fusion in my back. Bones have all you know, become one in that one part, my lumbar. And they had to take my spleen out, so I'm spleenless. In case you wondered, it's pretty obvious, isn't it? I'm spleenless. Um, I, they took my spleen out, and uh, just all of it. It was very dramatic. I was very, the whole thing was very difficult. I, I missed almost my whole third quarter of my high school senior year, uh, just in and out of the doctor, and it was very tough. Um, very hard times. I wouldn't want to go through it again. But when I think about where my life was going, my life was going in the wrong direction. You know, if I would have not had that moment where God stopped me and got my attention, where would I have been today? I don't know. I don't know. But I'm thankful where I am today, and it's because God, at a key moment in my life, stepped in, and in my wife's life, because we went through it together, stepped in and said, no, I've got a bigger plan for you. And, uh, you know, there are parts of just my life now, even just the way my body is, um, that I, I will never be like I was before, and those are reminders to me of how good God has been to me. And uh, that chastisement I went through was not easy. In fact, let's continue reading the text. Verse 7. If ye endure chastening, God dealeth with you as with sons. For what son is he whom the Father chasteneth not? But if ye be without chastisement, whereof all are partakers, your bastards, and not sons. Furthermore, we have had fathers in our flesh, which corrected us, and we gave them reverence. Shall we not much rather be in subjection unto the Father's spirits and live? For they, speaking of our earthly father, uh, fathers, verily for a few days chastened us after their own pleasure, but he for our profit, that we might be partakers of his holiness. 
Now no chastening for the present seemeth to be joyous, but grievous. Nevertheless, afterward, it yieldeth the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby. And again, there's a lot of details to the story. Let me just say this last thing and I'll be done. Um, you know, in, in those high school years, thinking about, you know, making it big, making it in business, whatever. You know how kids think, and I thought it. I had all these big plans, big thoughts, and I was the center of all those plans. God's stopping me and, and, and together, both of us. God gave me a far different view of what my life should be. And within a few months, I graduated from high school, ended up going to St. Cloud State University. It's right in central Minnesota. And uh, it was at St. Cloud State University that God led me to a group of kids from the Independent Baptist Church in town that began to disciple me, work in my life. Both my wife and me uh, were growing in those days because of that group. Um, I was able to lead a number of fellas in my dorm to the Lord. I had never yet led anybody to the Lord. I got to see some of them saved. got to see Chauncey get baptized. And do you know what God began to do in my heart? Whoa, just began to warm in my heart. A love for serving him. Uh, we had revival meetings in the spring of 1995 with a man named Larry Brown. You might know the name Larry Brown. Larry Brown was preaching revival at our church. And I walked the aisle one day to surrender my life to serve God. And a special day, it was a Tuesday night. I remember just saying to the whole church, I don't know what it's going to look like, but I'm surrendering my life to serve God. And within a few months, August of 1995, we're getting ready to go off to Bible college, uh, God used Psalm 119 and called me to preach in very definite terms. And uh, praise the Lord for that. Do you know the reality is that chastening was very difficult. It was actually during my first year at Bible college that they took the rods out of my back. So I had to go through a back surgery again. and It was just all tough. Uh, Travis Mazingo had to help clean my bandages every day. He was hating life, and I was hating life. Um, nice guy Travis was to change my bandages on my back. But uh, I'm telling you, all that was difficult. But I have, I have, in, I have uh, reaped the peaceable fruit of righteousness because I was exercised by the chasing of the Lord. And I think about that. I think, well, um, if I could change anything, what would I change? Well, I wouldn't change that, for sure. Um, but, you know, I think I probably didn't have to endure that. But I was stubborn enough God had to do something pretty radical to get my attention. And this is why I felt like I should share this with you all tonight. Remember we talked about Zechariah this morning in the men's prayer meeting? And a part of what the, the people of Israel were doing wrong is they were responding to the discipline, but they weren't actually getting to the cause of the discipline. So they were lamenting the bad that was happening, and they were failing to get to the core of why. And God had to use a, a chastening in my life to help me go deeper to realize the real issue was a surrender issue for me. And uh, sweetly, through a difficult time, God led me to a total surrender to him. Well, I'll be honest with you. Could I have gotten to that total surrender without the accident? I would say, maybe. I, I, I don't know, because I wasn't there, but sure, why not? Now, I'm looking in this room. There's a lot of young people in this room. This, sto this story isn't just for young people. But you know, honestly, young person, God knows how to maneuver circumstances in your life to get your attention. And uh, it would be better to respond sweetly when it's a sweet moment than push and push and go your way until God has to be a little bit more radical in your life. Either way, it's the love of God. That accident was not God being mean. It was God being merciful. And I especially want to appeal to our young people in here. Um, you may or may not have to deal with something like that. But I want to challenge you, make it a purpose to surrender to God all, way, uh, all the way today. And uh, I, don't, I, you know, I, I will forever have to deal with a back injury. But it was sweet, a sweet memory, but I wish I could have avoided it. And a young person, I think you can too. And you know the reality is, friends, um, adults, teens alike, when God intervenes in your life and even brings a, a hard moment, it's not because he doesn't love us. It's because he does love us. Do you know the most unloving thing God could have done would have been to let me go my way? And uh, think about as a parent, uh, it, whom the Lord loves, he corrects, who a parent, uh, a parent that loves disciplines their child. And a discipline toward your children, we talked about this with string training, um, 
that's not because we were mean. It's because we loved our kids. And instruments gave us an opportunity to discipline. And in a broader scope in the spiritual life, when God touches your life, even with a hard thing, it's not because he's a hard God. And it's not because he's mean or even mad. It's because he loves you enough. He's got a bigger plan than you going your own way. And uh, the greatest thing is just to say, Lord, you have it all. You have all. And uh, endure discipline to enjoy the peaceful fruit of righteousness. You know, here I am, 46 years old. Can I be honest with you? I wouldn't change any of it. Uh, I kind of wish I don't have the physical reality of it, but the memory of what God did in those days is actually sweet now. But serving Jesus Christ is far and away better than anything the world could have ever offered. And a young person, if you're struggling with that surrender decision, there's nothing better than serving the Lord Jesus Christ. I'd say surrender everything tonight. Lord, I'm going to give you everything. You've got everything. Better to surrender now than have to have God intervene in a way that's a little bit more dramatic. Uh, and then also all of us across the room, maybe there is a place in your life where God has touched and it hurts. Don't faint in that moment. God is loving you. He might be stopping you in a way. Embrace the pain. Because it's God's love leading you into something far better. Because God loves us as his sons. Let's pray about it. Let's pray. Lord, I pray for anybody in this audience tonight really sense that you wanted me to share my story. And perhaps it's because there's somebody listening tonight that is in the throes of a battle of surrender. And Lord, I pray that you would help whoever it might be, young or old. If there's an individual in this room that needs to come to that full, sweet surrender to you. Lord, I pray that you'd help them to do that tonight. And uh, maybe there's just a, a reality of something that, 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 that somebody in this room is dealing with that's hard and it's a little bit of pain. I pray that you'd give them grace to just sweetly receive it as from a loving Father because you are guiding us, you're chasing us, you're, you're training us because you want us to, to run faster and, and, and endure uh, stronger and ultimately because you have a task for us. And Lord Jesus, I want to praise you as we've gone through uh, this one aspect of my story and, and uh, how you worked in my, my, my life and, and my wife's life. <laughs> Lord Jesus, you're the hero of it. I didn't create that moment. Uh, you did it because you had something to do to show your glory in my life. And I pray tonight the thing that we'd walk away with is a sweet surrender to you because you're the hero of our story.